0: welcome
1: to the wired to hunt podcast i'm your host mark kenyon this is episode number 108 today in the show we're joined by land tawny the ceo and president of backcountry hunters and anglers to discuss public lands conservation and what bha is doing that we deer hunters might care about Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today, as I mentioned, we've got Lan Tawny of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers with us, and we're going to be discussing what Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is, why it's relevant to us deer hunters across the country, probably more so than many of us might think, and what's going on with public lands conservation and policy across the country. So, again, this is going to be a very interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Unfortunately... Again this week, because of some scheduling issues, my co-host Dan Johnson isn't able to join us, but he told me to say hi and let you all know he'll be back soon. So with that said, we are not going to beat around the bush, but before we get land on the show, we need to briefly pause to thank our sponsors of this podcast, Sitka Gear, for stepping up and making this show possible. Now, we'll be continuing with our Sitka Stories series soon, but today, I want to mention something that I've been using a lot lately. So as many of you know, I've been out here in Idaho exploring the mountains, and a new piece of Sika gear that I just received has become my everyday layer for just about everything out here, and that's the Fanatic hoodie in solid black. You probably have heard me rave about the Fanatic hoodie for whitetail hunting, as that piece in Optifade camo has become a layer that I wear on every single one of my deer hunts, with its built-in face mask, kangaroo pocket, microgrid fleece, and built-in hand mitts. But in solid black, this piece now is my favorite item to wear on hikes, fly fishing, bagging peaks, and just around town too. There's something about that thin gridded fleece and the close to body fit that just makes this layer warm enough in cool to cold temperatures, but also still comfortable on sunny, warmer days too. So if you haven't checked out the Fanatic hoodie, whether the camel version for whitetail hunting or in solids as an everyday outdoor layer, it's one item that I would just recommend so so highly so to learn more you can visit sickgear.com and now let's get to the meat and potatoes of our episode today and welcome lan tawny onto the podcast all right with us on the line now is lan tawny welcome to the show lan
2: hey thanks for having me
1: yeah i'm excited to chat and i realize we just talked a second ago offline that we just crossed paths you were you were right here where i'm at weren't you
2: yeah, down in uh, uh, one of the most beautiful places in the world, Driggs, Idaho, which is uh, just outside of like the Teton uh, Mountains, which is you know gorgeous peaks and river runs through it. It's, it's almost as good as Montana.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty spectacular country. I uh, I'm bummed I missed you. We were, we were probably driving past each other at some point. So, did you have a good time on there?
2: I did. I did. Uh, I had some events in Jackson Hole. They have the uh, Western Governors Association meeting was going on so I had some things I had to do along with that and um was able to uh, our Montana Adapter had to camp out that weekend before so I went from Headwater State Park which is just outside of uh, Bozeman and drove down through the park and actually got to fish and uh, caught quite a few fish um, on the Fire River and the Gibbon River and then uh, did events so it was a nice little uh, tour.
1: Nice, yeah. I uh, I've been testing the waters up in the fire hole too I've had a little bit of success but uh, you probably know what you're doing better than I do so <laughs> glad you did well. I don't know
2: about that I think they were just maybe I got lucky and they were hungry that day one thing I will tell you is that uh, that river is so warm you know with all the um, the, geo, you know, the geo kind of activity that's going on there and geothermal I guess activity and I just wonder what happens to them later in the summer you know and, and, and fishing at this time of year it was still cold enough probably for those trout but um, you got to wonder what happens later in the
1: year. I wonder the same thing because it, you know, it fishes so well early, but I got to believe it's either they either they shut maybe they shut it down, I don't know, but either they shut it down or the fishing the fish themselves just can't be too active when it gets so warm like you said. It's already pretty warm. So. Yep. Yep. It's interesting. So, you've been on this big trip, you're back at work now. I guess speaking of your work, for those that aren't familiar, you know, I briefly introduced you as a CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, but can you tell us a little bit more about how you got to that point, what your background is?
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, I'm a fifth-generation Montanan, very lucky uh, to grow up here in Montana, and um, my my father and mother really uh, drove kind of us kids getting outside, and my dad ended up being the the lawyer for the Elk Foundation um, for the first 10 years until he passed away, and so, you know, I from a young age, uh, you know, I was on my dad's back fishing, um, you know, hiking up steep mountains where I literally had to step in his footsteps because um, the snow was so deep and if I went off, if I did not do that, I wouldn't be able to make it. And and so I think I'm trying to do the same thing with my kids And, and because that background gave me this kind of appreciation um, for the great outdoors and the kind of the heritage that we have but then also this drive to try to, you know, protect it and make sure that, you know, our future generations have it. So I feel real lucky that way. And um, I'll tell you that, uh, you know, I was, I was out in Seattle going to school, kind of screwing around, getting a business degree, and um, my father got real sick, and then he ended up passing away. And so that, that brought me back to Montana. And while that is the most significant kind of tragic event in my life um, and still think about him every single day, is that, you know, it kind of brought me back to Montana and grounded me. And, and, and really that's when I, you know, engaged and kind of decided this is kind of what I wanted to do. And I, I got a wildlife biology degree here at the University of Montana. And, you know, kind of my senior year there, uh, I kind of figured out that I wanted to be more involved in policy than kind of on the ground. I love being in the field, uh, but I wanted to be able to, like, to impact, you know, large kind of policies. And so uh, got done with my degree, and then I started volunteering for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Alliance, which was the precursor to the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. <laughs> it was brand new at that point, uh, same guy that had uh, started the Elk Foundation or one of the guys that started the Elk Foundation, Bob Munson. Uh, he was heading it up, and so I started volunteering for him. Uh, I think I worked as a volunteer for six months doing like data entry and not real fun stuff, but uh, at least got my foot in the door and and got a part-time job, and then eventually got a, a full-time job with them, and, and that was really, I think, such a great opportunity for me because I was—it was such a small organization, and I was able to, uh, one, meet a lot of people within the conservation field, uh, but also be involved. Um, and I ended up being their national grassroots coordinator uh, before I left, and you know, I, I really appreciate my time with them. And. Um, a lot of the the leaders that i you know had there and one of them was jim range and jim used to work for howard baker who was the uh, he was the majority leader in the senate and he was just you know he helped him write the clean air act the clean water act um and that was back when you know republicans and democrats um alike uh, really worked together to you know work on our kind of conservation heritage so it's great to learn kind of some things from him and That set me up then to, I went to work for the National Wildlife Federation after about three and a half years working with them. And, uh, you know, became their national kind of sportsman's outreach coordinator. And so I was in charge of all the sportsman's campaigns within National Wildlife Federation, and then specifically ran a couple, one around the 1872 mining law, and another one around the restoration of the Mississippi River Delta. And so was able to work with they have chapters all over the country or i guess they call them affiliates grassroots kind of hunters and anglers' been in the game for a long time, and so I got to work with those volunteers and mobilize them and and really, I was happy there and um you know i I'd, I'd become a member of of b h uh, a right when they started back in two thousand and four and I was always kind of attracted to their mission and uh and then I started you know the they had a search committee. For this this new job that they were hiring, and, and I really, you know, I didn't take a real serious look at it, and until one night, you know, I really looked at at BHA, and the the car had been built, and this nobody had, you know, really knew how to drive it yet, and so I was able to take the skills that I've learned over the last decade and a half from those other two organizations, and then bring them to, you know, a new organization that uh, really was in, in its infancy. Well, it was started in 2004 it had all been volunteer driven and great volunteers i know that when i worked for national wildlife federation we do a flying out to dc on on one issue or another but i always looked to folks from backcountry hunters and anglers because they not only did they know their place because they're you know out there you know not just a couple days a year but you know as much as they can and in some cases you know it's 200 or so days a year and um they knew their place, but they're also like, they knew the policies and were very passionate about and um, protecting these places. And so you get them up there and they'd just be so effective in front of our elected officials. And so I've had kind of a reverence to them. And, and, you know, when I came here, I was uh, the first kind of full-time employee um, that we had at that point. And, you know, now we've, we've grown to this large organization and, you know, we're still small, I think within the, uh, within the sportsman kind of conservation community, but, you know, where we were three years ago uh, is really pale in comparison to where we are now. And I think that, you know, besides kind of having a good idea, which, you know, we're the sportsman's voice for our wild public lands, waters, and wildlife, is that, you know, that, that, that's resonating even more, I think, with people because, um, you know, this idea of, of adventure and challenge, you know, it shows up in Spartan races and, um, you know, tough mudders, etc. and, you know, people are looking for that challenge, and the only places that you can actually uh, experience that are on public lands and these wild public lands, and we're, we're not making any more of them. You know, I mean,
3: I, nobody's going to, you know,
2: nobody, there's not a, um, you know, a concrete Association of America that is, like, protecting concrete to make sure that <laughs> nobody, like, you know, that like, up, right? Like, oh, thank goodness. These public yeah, right, you know, but, and they can make that stuff any time, and, uh, you know, it's it's something um, that you don't have to worry about losing. But these public lands that we have, especially the wild pieces of them, you know, we're not making any more of that. And that's what makes us unique as kind of Americans compared to the rest of the world. And it's where you and I and every American uh, can experience the same things that really have been going on for, for centuries. That's a pretty cool thing. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm having fun, more fun than I have in my entire career, and I get to work with a lot of great people, both volunteers and staff, so it's it's a good thing.
1: That sounds incredible. Now, our audience is, you know, serious deer hunters comprise the majority of our audience, and and they're all across the country, but probably the majority are in the Midwest, East, and the Southern part of the United States. Now, I know that the backcountry hunters and anglers started in the West, and I think you've got a slightly larger contingent in that part of the country, so I'm, I'm curious if there might be a large portion of our audience that doesn't really know who you guys are, and what you do. Can you just lay out the groundwork? What is BHA? What do you guys do? What do you stand for?
2: Yeah, for sure. So I you know, gave you the tagline kind of first, you know, the sportsman's voice for our wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. And so what that really means is, in shorthand, is that is that we want to make sure that we keep public lands in public hands, so that's access, and, and make sure that, you know, you have a place to go. And then once you get there, we want to make sure that there's you know the good fish and wildlife habitat so that um, so that uh, you know we we don't um, so we have the opportunities that we all care about and and so you know within that, there's really um, a bunch of things that we worked on and so the first one, um, kind of that access and opportunity and access and opportunity right now there's this movement you know that that seems to be growing every day on the sale or transfer of public lands. And, you know, once you lose these public lands, you don't get them back. And so we think that's a really dumb idea. Um, and, and so there's that piece um, within the access kind of bucket, I will call it. Uh, in addition, there's a thing called the Land and Water Conservation Fund, and that was established back in 1964. And, uh, um, you know, we, we advocate for that because it's the number one access tool in this country. And so that access... Um, you know, like like to either isolated public lands, um, or just getting better access to public lands that we have now. Like that's the tool to do it, and so we want to make sure that you know that is carried into the future. Um, next piece is probably our biggest budget, or big, biggest bucket, excuse me, and that's uh, kind of just fish and wildlife habitat, and so we want to make sure that uh, um, you know that once you get to these public lands, that really you have the opportunity to hunt and fish, and so you know there's things like the Clean Water Act, you know, this overarching piece. That makes sure that our waters stay healthy. And you know, like just recently, the administration came out with some new rules that that restored protections uh, to temporary wetlands. And so these are you know wetlands that ducks are using right now. Um, vitally important. They're only kind of wet this time of year, um, especially in the Prairie Pothole Region. So North Dakota, South Dakota, a little bit of Minnesota, and a little bit of Montana. And this is where where the duck factory basically is. We want to make sure that those places are protected. Uh, and it also protects uh, temporary streams, so places where that are again wet right now, that are being used for spawning habitat, and are vital to kind of fish populations. So we we worked real hard on making sure that those uh, those I guess protections were restored. Um, other pieces, you know, within that would be like funding. Um, you know, funding right now has been has has been going down for our fish and game agencies, and so they can't do the things that they want to do. And whether that's restoration stuff. Um, well, that's you know making sure we have you what know, is happening on the ground through studies. Uh, they can't do that, and one of the main reasons they can't do that uh, as much anymore is, is because you know one their budget's been going down, but two we're having other fires every single year, and these fires. Uh, um, you know, they take up 50%, let's say, of the Forest Service budget right now. And so that's why they cannot do everything else is because, you know, this, these fires happen every single year and they just don't have the appropriate money. So we're working to get that um, fire off of kind of normal Forest Service budget and treat it just like, um, just like any other natural disaster. So floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, we feel like that fits there. And so there's a host of things I think that we work on there. I mean, uh, one I would say that I haven't brought up yet is that you know we really try to work at a collaborative effort and look at you know national forests and, and as, a, as a kind of a watershed. And and, and instead of you know only looking at trying to protect these wild public lands, is like how would how would how would this all look if it was managed um, for everyone? And so an example of that is something we're doing in Idaho It's called the Clearwater Basin Collaborative. And really there we've worked with timber folks, we've worked with ATV folks, local county commissioners, other kind of conservation organizations, and, uh, and um, timber um, folks, and, and really said, here's this whole forest. Like, let's figure out what is best for all of us. And so within that, there's 500,000 acres of new wilderness. There's 200 miles of wild and scenic river, 200 miles of the longest continuous ATV route in the west, and then uh, increased timber harvest in the front country. And so it's a path forward for everybody. You know, is it, is it perfect for everyone? Probably not. But, as, you know, as, as these conversations have happened over the last decade, uh, folks really have come to the, the idea that we'd rather have a path forward than nothing at all. And so um, um, everybody can live with it. And, uh, and, and so now hopefully we're going to move forward with it. So that's that kind of land protection piece um, that we engage in. And the final piece that I haven't really talked about, but kind of the final bucket, is fair chase. And you know, as you know, we as hunters think about you know what that means to us, especially in the growing technology world. Uh, we want to be a leading voice on that. And you know, that was stuff that was started probably you know in the 1870s. I think is when uh, Forest and Stream, which was the precursor to Field and Stream, first came out, and really that talked about kind of the sportsman's code and you know how you act out there and as a steward and um, and how you pursue game, and so you fast forward to today, and two of the issues that we're working on there, I think, really fly in the face of that kind of that sportsman ethic. And the first one is, is with drones, and drones have, you know, been used for the, by the military for a while now, and they're becoming more and more popular on the civilian side, and becoming more and more uh, sophisticated, uh, and and uh, affordable. And so folks are starting to use drones uh for scouting and you know during the hunting season and um you know it's like you could call me up uh from michigan and say hey i want to come hunt you know an elk out in montana and uh make sure you find one before i get there and i could send up my drones and by the time you got here i could give you a gps coordinate and i could you know put you right on that bull and you can go shoot it and to us that has nothing to do with fair chase um really um it's not fair to hunt so uh, we've helped you know bands of drones for for hunting and scouting um I think in thirteen states now and and that's we're working on more um some states that feel like they have that coverage just to their their uh, um, aviation and kind of you know, We're making sure that they they insert uh uh drones to those rules and then also i mean the thing with a drone versus an airplane is you can hear an airplane you know for miles. And uh drones really got to be right above you for you to to hear it and then see it, and so they're much more or much less invasive, I would say, and so there's much more propensity that you know people would be doing things and so instead of like the twenty four hour rule that's in place in a lot of states on airplanes, uh we went for the whole season, and that just seems to work, and you know the the wardens like that a lot better uh The second one in there is um one that's near and dear to my heart is really uh this idea of hunting animals behind a fence, and um you know I think. I talked earlier in this conversation about how people are kind of thirsting for that adventure and challenge. And that could, you know, this this is the antithesis of that, you know. Yeah. And it's uh, folks shooting animals in a pen, like, I, they don't tell that story, right? But when they shoot that animal in the pen, they put that head up on the wall and brag about it. Like, they're not bragging that they were, you know, in, a, in an enclosure shooting that animal. Um, they're telling some story about they were on a peak in Montana or in Idaho or wherever, and, um, to me, it's it's you know it's, it's one it's the fair chase aspect. It's also there's a disease factor there where these things are kind of vectors for disease, and then the last piece is, is that you know if these animals get out, um, kind of that what that does to the um, kind of the the population's genes um, as these things infiltrate. So that's just a like a short snapshot mark of kind of what we work on in those three buckets. But um, you know what separates us, I think, from every other forces organization out there is that we really work on public policy um, on public lands basically strictly. And so, you know, we're not like the Elk Foundation out, you know, buying wintering habitat um, for elk or, you know, duck habitat for ducks, like Ducks Unlimited, which is all great work. Uh, we're really focused on public lands. And, you know, and, and with that, you know, we have a, you know, a growing grassroots constituency all across the country. And, um, you know, you mentioned we started in the West, which we did. We started around a a campfire in Oregon, which, you know, all good things start at a campfire. <laughs>
3: right.
2: um, um, and, you know, we've, and we, we have all Western states covered with chapters now, but now we're moving into the Midwest, and, you know, we've had one for a while in Minnesota, but just picked up one in your home state of Michigan and, and Wisconsin, and we've got chapters in Pennsylvania and New York and then all the New England states. So, you know, I I think, you know, you think you know, when you think about public lands, a lot of people think that you know they're only located in the West. And I look at like the Huron-Manistee kind of national forest in Michigan. Yeah. Like, there's public land. I mean, that, like that's a, those are large, significant swaths. I mean, in North Carolina and South Carolina, there's a, a um, national forest there that's like over a million acres. So there's still those places. Yes, the West has more. Um, but for for you all, one you know I mean you, we were talking earlier about how you 're going to come out here and hunt, and i 'm guessing that 's going to be on public lands, so it 's important yeah. that way um, and then you know those public lands back home, there might not be as many of them, which I think makes them even that much more important and so um, you know while we started in the west uh, we 're definitely we 're resonating across the country because people are starting to understand of the importance of public lands. And that all of us like every single person on this that's listening to this is a public landowner like we we own that land federal government manages it for us but all of us have ownership in that and to me i think there could be nothing more american than that and uh, the more people find out that you know they own this large i think it's like 646 million acre estate where you know we can all live like kings i think they want to step up and make sure it's there for future generations
1: Absolutely. And I think it's it's such an important point to bring up for those of us that, you know, as you mentioned, maybe we don't have as much public land here in the Midwest or on the East Coast. And I think sometimes we forget that all that is available to us and that it is, it, you know, like you said, we can live like kings out there. It's ours. It's ours to use, but it's also ours to protect and that we are also responsible for it. So I think to your points, there is so much relevance to people where I live or in the South or in the East coast in what you guys are doing. I mean, like you said, you're protecting public lands, not just out West, but all across the country. You're working for fair chase. You're working to promote fair chase. That's very, uh, very impactful on a lot of what we do as deer hunters. The the high fence thing is a major issue. The drone thing is a major issue. Um, I think that really, there's there's a universal countrywide relevance to your mission and what you're trying to do. And, and I think one of the big things that I am trying to do is I want to make sure as many people know about it as possible because it is relatively unique what you guys are doing. There aren't any organizations that are focused really primarily on public land policy, public land, public land issues, and not species specific. You guys are working across the board for wildlife, for habitat, and that's what has really drawn me to your mission to your organization so I became a member I don't know maybe four or five years ago and now I'm actually on the board of directors for the Michigan chapter and I'm really excited about what we're doing here in my home state and I just you know call to action for everybody listening I mean what you guys are doing impacts all of us and I think we can all you know help that cause too by becoming a part of it so I guess my first or next question then is for those that are interested in this mission, who who like what you're saying, who who that resonates with, you know what's what's entailed when they join. How do you join? What's the cost? What's in it for them? How can they help?
2: Great. And uh, by the way, uh, thank you for stepping up. Um, I think there's a Roosevelt quote that I just absolutely love. I, there's many of his, um, but uh, it's, it's it goes like this. It's like, I admire the man who takes the next step, not those that theorized about the 200th. And, like, you becoming a member, you uh, stepping up and being on the board in Michigan and help, you know, start that chapter, like, that's stepping up, that's doing something, right? Like, we're in the arena, and I just, you know, I think, um, I hope more people, you know, do that. And so, uh big thank you for me, Mark. No,
1: no problem. Thank you.
2: Um you know, our membership is, 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 you know, our single membership is, is super cheap. It's $25, you know. I mean, that's, uh, that's going out with a couple of friends and having a couple of beers. It's not that much money. Um, and so what that gets you, that gets connected um, into our kind of network. And so, you know, if something's happening, um, we send you an action alert and you know, you provide you know, an opportunity for you to get involved really quickly. Uh, so there's that piece. If you have a local chapter, in your state, this automatically connects you to that local chapter, and so you can get involved kind of with what they 're doing at a local level um, and then it gets you our magazine that comes out four times a year and this magazine i think and i 'm biased obviously, but uh, I think it's one of the best magazines that 's out there right now is that it 's this um, it 's this mix of kind of conservation policy as well as Kind of the backcountry experience, and um, and I, it's getting better and better with each issue, and I think that's a it's a big asset that you get. Um, that's our that's our, our our level there. There's a family membership at 35 that you know we have we, definitely uh, we're family oriented and would love to have more families involved. Um, there's a hundred dollar supporting member uh, that's that's yearly that uh, I think if you want to step up a little bit more. And then there's the final piece of, of, with our life membership, and I think our life membership right now, like you can almost af- not af- you can't afford not to become a life member right now. Um, I'm not sure how long we'll have these premiums that are so awesome, but you know you gotta. Right now, if you become a life member at $1,000, you get an uh, opportunity to have either a Seek outside tent, who's one of our great corporate partners based out of Colorado. They're actually making their tents in Colorado, um, so you get a little TP tent there with a titanium stove. Um, or you can, you know, choose a a Micro Carry um, 380, a Kimber Micro Carry 380, um, and each one of those, like, it's, there's not much difference between their retail value and the actual thousand dollars. Um, and so again, I, I don't think you can. I mean, if you hear, if you like what you're hearing, and you think that uh, either one of those is an attractive kind of piece. Um, You can't afford not to do it right now. And then, you know, we move into the 1500, which is a larger TP with a titanium stove. Um, And then uh, a a 45, and the Kimber 45 ACP, their custom two, real nice pistol. Um, And then we move into the 2500 level, and I think that's their Seek Outside's largest TP, which is a 12-man uh, stove again there, um, and then if you want, you can get the uh, instead you can get the uh, Mountain Ascent rifle uh, from Kimber, which is the it's the lightest production rifle on the market and is just phenomenal. Um, the the artwork that's kind of gone into this, like the fluting of the bolt and everything, um, is absolutely gorgeous, and it, it's a gun that performs too. That thing retails for about twenty one hundred. So. Um, you're getting a good deal on either one of those and yeah. I encourage folks to take a look at it and again, I'm not sure how long those will last they'll last for the rest of the year um, but they've been really generous to us and um, who knows how long that lasts so uh, if you can, get it in now
1: Yeah, I've seen that and I, I was very, very tempted, it's it's on my to-do list here soon to just make it happen because I was like, wow I, I want another handgun, I think this is a good way to go uh, about right. doing it and support the right. right cause, so I like that Now, you had talked a little bit about some of the things going on farther east here in the Midwest and your new chapters and everything. Are there any actual current events or issues happening in those parts of the country that you guys are working on? I I know like, for example, there's some stuff going on in the boundary waters, I think, but is there any, you know, could you tell us more about that or anything else that you guys are keeping your eye on in this part of the country?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll talk to I mean, I think the, the boundary waters is a good example. Um, you know, very special place, uh, you know, one of the it's the most visited wilderness in the entire country and that's because it's so darn accessible. You know, you can take young kids in there, you can take grandparents in there and um but at the same time still get lost, um, because of just the nature of, you know, I think of all the different kind of lakes that are connected there and um so it's you know it's been around for a long time and it's a it's a highly valued for for hunting and fishing and also just kind of the clean water that it provides in those local communities and um, there's a couple of mines that are proposed on the southern end that i think one of them is only a, like a quarter mile from the edge and all the water flows north there and so you know any kind of spillage uh, would go into um, the boundary waters and taint that forever and um... you know there's there's not a mine that hasn't leaked and so it's not a matter about if that's going to happen it's a matter of when and so something we're really in, engaged in and what's awesome is that we've been working on this you know with our members for a while now and then a greater kind of coalition and just uh here in the last week uh the chief of the forest service announced that they're going to look at those two mines um their permits and uh and see if if it's not a place that they should be permitted and so um, there'll be a public comment period kind of on that I'm not like I'm not exactly sure how they're structuring that but it'll start June 20th and kind of go through uh uh, July uh, 19th, I think is it so. It's like about a 30-day uh, comment period, and so there's an opportunity to get involved in that right now. And, and even if you don't, you know, go to the Boundary Waters, never been there, maybe never will go there. Like it's one of those places that you just love knowing that it's out there, and uh, knowing that um, you know if you if, if you did want to go, you could. So that's one thing. Um, I think one thing I would call out is what you guys did in in Michigan that I'm I'm watching, but kind of letting you guys take the lead on, yeah, because you're there and you know it. And that's this idea of you know we talk about the sale and transfer of public lands um, at a federal level, but one of the reasons you know we are worried about them being transferred to the states is because the states have, have have divested a lot of the lands that was originally granted to them, and that's happening right in your state right now i mean there's there you know, you know more about this than me, but there's you know state land that's being put on the auction block, and while that makes sense sometimes because of the uh I guess the quality of land that that is, and that it might not be the greatest fish and wildlife habitat, like, there's stuff on the on the chopping block that is there. And to me, um, you know, you guys are at the kind of tip of the spear there. have already gone to the state legislature, which I think is awesome, um, and have kind of hit the ground running. So I think, you know, those two um, would be stuff I call out. I mean, I, I think the, um, you know, some of the stuff we've talked about, whether that's zones or, uh, or, like, game farms that are kind of universal, um, definitely... stuff that's happening um you know we've got some stuff we're looking at over in maine right now they're looking at uh designating either a a national park or a national monument up there in the maine woods and um, it's a private entity um a woman that uh, was part of the the um the bees kind of lip balm kind of like uh burt's bees bees. yeah thank you sorry i lost that for a second but burt's bees so she has this, this property up there that she wants to gift to the United States. And so uh, we're trying to make sure that, you know, there's opportunities to hunt and fish up there um, and that, you know, that, that landscape is maintained and um, it's conserved. So um, those are a couple. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, what's, what's, what's unique about this country and, and, and you know, we're, we're a huge geography, but, you know, when stuff goes on out in D.C., you know, there's stuff that, you know, that, that, that we need. Elected officials in Wisconsin and Michigan and Minnesota, New York, Pennsylvania—these places that it, the legislation may only impact the West, but they still vote on it, right? And so, like being able to like educate those folks um, on all sorts of different issues, you got to have those people in place. And so, um, you know, expanding our reach with the chapters in the kind of the Upper Midwest—I call it like the Great Lakes
3: region—and um, then
2: kind of the the, uh, the New England and kind of, like, New York and Pennsylvania, like, not only can they help us work on more stuff in those local areas, uh, but they can also help us at the federal level, so, um, you know, again, it may look different, you know, the public lands might be a little bit different, but, you know, man, we want to take care of them, and then, you know, there's a lot of private property especially like with timber companies that are in the in the east that um you know aren't necessarily open to the public and so you know you know getting some public access to those pieces um is something that you know i think uh, some of our local chapters are working on uh east of the mississippi well and i think that's a you know it's a great thing for them
1: to be doing yeah so what's something i kind of I think some people maybe wonder about when they hear about all these different types of issues that you guys are working on or these topics of concern. They might wonder, you know, what are you actually doing? Like, how do you work on that? I mean, is it you and your team going and talking to legislators or is it just, you know, mobilizing members to call and write letters? Or how is it that BHA actually makes an impact on these issues that are, you know, of importance to you and us?
2: That's great. Um, so let's take the like, Boundary Water, since that's just something that's, like, real topical right now. So, um, like, and that's something proactive that we're trying to do, and then I'll talk about defense after that. So this is a place, you know, that we've described already and that, you know, we really care about. And so, you know, one of these lines is kind of, like, the permanent problem going forward, like, we've been out to D.C. talking to people and within the administration saying this is not a good idea. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And and so you know we've been doing that for a while now, and then just for that, so those are kind of you know intense kind of one-on-one meetings, and so that now has precipitated kind of this process where they're going to look at these like the permits of these mines, and so now once that process starts, like we really want to turn on the grassroots. You know, it's not so much anymore about like kind of these one-on-one meetings, but it's about mobilizing the masses, and so uh, we're going to be driving a petition uh, that gets folks to um, you know, to, to voice their opinion, uh, to the administration about why they think it's a bad idea. And, uh, and so that, you know, they have a way to engage and then that, that we just overwhelm them with numbers and then they hopefully make the right decision. So, um, you know, really that's, that's, that's how we work things is, is, is you know, is, is really mobilizing grassroots. And, you know, sometimes, um, that's not, you know, signing a petition or writing a letter or making a phone call. That's, you know, writing an opinion editorial that gets placed in a paper. Um, that's, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, showing up at a meeting like you know, there's going to be a meeting on the Boundary Waters. I think it's July 13th in Duluth, and so we're you know we're going to mobilize a bunch of people to go to that. So there's many ways for grassroots folks to get involved. And then you know, once in a while, we take people out to D.C. and I will tell you that's one of my most fun. Is I've I've been out there enough where it doesn't overwhelm me anymore, and uh, <laughs> it's fun to watch somebody kind of let their eyes get big when they're out in D.C. Um, and then for them to make an impact, you know? I mean, I, they really do make an impact. So um, for me, it's, it's a pretty cool thing, and um, that's kind of the way we work, I would say. I mean, that, the some of the stuff let's you know, like, like as public plans all um, have kind of management uh, regimes that they go under, and, and some of that's like they go over travel management, that's about every 15 years, and then resource management plans which are about every 15 years. And so that's like on the ground specific to that specific forest and, or, you know, piece of BLM property. And so then we engage people there where we, you know, look at kind of um, how that forest is being managed and then we comment on things that we think they should continue to do and then we, we comment on things on, on that we think that they should do differently. And so that's a way for us to engage in that process as well. Um, you know, and then, and then, you know, with, the, with drones, the majority of that happened uh, through... Uh, fish and game commissions, and so, you know, we were actively going to meetings there and uh, mobilizing people to write letters and stuff to fish and game commissioners, and then ultimately they made um, great decisions on drones. A couple of those had to happen at the state legislature, and so that's, you know, uh, informing people uh, and then getting them to, like, committee meetings and, and, and having them call their local elected officials. So um, really, like, we're a mobilizer, and then into, uh, one-on-one kind of uh, higher-level meetings as well.
1: So what's that like when you go to D.C. or you go and meet with these different agencies or commissions or whatnot? I mean, do are, are these people humoring us and listening to, you know, you guys or whatever other, other organizations out there? Or is, are they really taking what we're saying to heart? Because one of the things I worry about is, you know, as the number of hunters and anglers decrease to some degree, is, is our influence waning? Is that something you're seeing? Yep.
2: It's a great question. So I would say it's both, right? There's some folks that are just kind of humoring us and nodding their head, and then uh, you know they don't listen and they go do something else. Um, I think there's folks that are, are are listening and are true champions. I mean, I'd, I'd call out uh, Senator Stabenow from your home state. I mean, she has been nothing but a champion for sportsmen's issues, and especially as that relates to her position on the Agriculture Committee and you know the Farm Bill. Uh, she's just been amazing. Uh, Senator Heinrich out in New Mexico is, is, is another um, that's just amazing.
3: Um,
2: and I I think you're, you know, like hunting numbers and fishing uh, numbers, hunting and angling numbers have been going down for the last few decades. And on this last kind of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service study that they did, the numbers actually went up again. But mm-hmm. percentage-wise, yeah, we're dwindling. And so does that make me nervous? For sure. Um, but, you know, we're we're a constituency that not only uh, are we passionate about, uh, um, you know, our outdoor heritage and kind of the pursuits that we all love, we're also a huge economic driver. You know, we're part of a $646 billion outdoor economy that's generated every year. And, you know, if we take care of that, that's not only is sustainable, but I think that can grow. And so, you know, while percentage-wise we might not be, as big as maybe we once were, um, we still, you know, uh, we still definitely have a seat at the table. And and I think for those that are ignoring us, um, you know, we are, uh, uh, we're holding them accountable. And, you know, I I, I like to say it like we're calling spades, spades. So, you know, where folks are doing good things, um, you know, we really, you know, call them out and say thank you. A lot of times, like the fish never hear thank you. Uh, They beat up all the time. And so we make a a real conscious effort to say thank you when they're doing the right thing. And then on the flip side of that, when they do the wrong thing, uh, you know, we come out and we make sure that they understand that. And what you hope you do in that, there's a little bit of pain. And so that pain, you know, just like when you're training a dog, they don't want that pain. They want to. They, they want you know. They want to get that treat, and so uh, you help change their behavior through some of that pain. And that's not something that we really do lightly. I think you know there's there's certain organizations that uh... that's all they do is cry wolf and beat 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 beat. And I don't think that they have as much influence because everybody knows kind of where they are. Um, from our side, you know, I think people should know where we are as public land advocates. But you know, we're we're in this game to, again, thank you for doing the right thing and then uh, spank you for doing the wrong thing. And so, um, you know, I mean, we're we're not one way or the other, really. Um, and, and I think people appreciate that about us, um, but also can hopefully learn from
1: that as well. Yeah. So kind of in relation to, to all of that, one of the things that drives me nuts almost more than anything else, and me and Randy Newberg have commiserated about this, and I, I imagine it probably frustrates you too, is – this fact that conservation and wildlife has become so partisan, and you've got one party that says they support sportsmen and they help us with certain things, and then you've got another party that helps us with certain things, but then might ne- not necessarily be pro sportsmans rights or firearm rights or different things like that. H- how sure. do you how do you deal with that? How do we deal with that in a way in a world right now? I don't I don't know what to do anymore because I feel like I'm split down the middle with yeah I want this but I want that
2: yeah you know i you know we're a 501c3 and so you know we don't get involved in political campaigns in fact we're barred from doing that and um and so we're you know straight education and kind of uh influence um after somebody gets elected that said i think that that your listeners and every hunter and angler needs to know and needs to ask questions of their elected officials on where they stand on issues and i think uh kind of you know, the NRA has the Second Amendment, um, and I've heard uh, public lands almost described as the second Second Amendment, right? Like, it's that important, and, you know, it's a litmus test. And if you ask, a, you know, an elected official or somebody that's running, do you support uh, public lands, uh, you know, and, like, their answer is very telling. And I think we need, to, we need to educate ourselves that way. And then folks need to get out there and they need to to vote, um you know on those issues and i think you know if we if we do that um i think that both parties come back more to the center because that's where conservation is that's where our history comes from i mean again like you think about clean air clean water that was nixon and esa the like endangered species act like and that was done you know, in a Republican administration, but it was with su- overwhelming support from both sides of the aisle. And and that's where we need to get back to, and that's really where the country is. And I think, um, you know, I wish that our elected officials were, too. And I think, you know, that things have become more partisan. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, but they seem to be getting worse. And hopefully kind of conservation and kind of our hunting and fishing heritage is a place where we can work together. And, and we've proven that on some, on some cases, and I hope that uh, that becomes less of the exception and more of the rule.
1: Yeah. So speaking of the, well, speaking of what you mentioned, you guys can't participate in the politics and that type of issue, but education is something that sounds like you can do. Do you guys have plans to, or can you at all speak to what the public land policies, the stated public land policies are of the two major candidates right now for president? Because I feel like, it's like, what's real? You know, what some, some, one person says such and such, one person says such and such. I mean, can you speak mm-hmm. to what what do these two people stand for when it comes to public land? Is that something you can speak to?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, what we did something um, back when the primary was in Nevada. The Reno Journal, which is a newspaper out of Reno, um, asked the candidates some questions. And um, and so, you know, both Hillary and uh, Donald answered those questions, and we published those and so it 's not us you know necessarily saying um, we 're we're definitely not saying hey this one 's better, this one 's worse we 're just fighting information. and so we 've done that um, and we 'll continue to kind of play that piece. Um, one thing i 'd love for us to do that we 're just not kind of uh, we 're not big enough right now, I think, to do just because it takes a pretty Herculean effort, but what we do would be to do like a scorecard. Yeah. And so, you know, this is how this person voted on, you know, these issues, um, and you need to know that, right? And, again, not saying, hey, go vote for this person or not vote for that person. People can make their own kind of conclusion, but really provide information. I do I definitely want to do. We just weren't set up to do, um, you know, this year, and maybe that's something we can engage in next year. You have to be we have to be careful how you do that and ask very diverse questions, because, you know, it can be seen as looting, and that's not something we want to do. We really want to be, you know, more educational. So, you um, know, for, for us, you know, I think, I mean, on the public lands, a piece in, in particular, uh, um, that, you know, Trump kind of set himself aside, you know, apart from the other Republican candidates by saying that, you know, he wanted to make sure that, you know, public lands stay in public hands. Um, I will say that there were some folks involved in the campaign um, that either misspoke um, or there was some confusion within what that actually meant, but said that, man, we own too many public lands or, too you know, too many, uh, we have too many public lands and we need to sell some of that, and that would be a good way for us to, like, you know, work on the national debt. So, you know, I, I look forward to kind of hearing more about his stance. I haven't seen anything um, ab- about kind of... Uh, of his uh, platform, but you know, on that specifically. So I'd love to. I I don't think it's out yet. Um, and and then on on the Clinton side, um, you know, she came out uh, really, you know, really strongly in support of of keeping public lands in public hands. And then I I mentioned earlier the kind of 646 billion dollars, um, you know, is generated from outdoor recreation every year. Um, Hillary came out and said that she wants to double that uh, if she was elected. And I, I think that might be political speak because <laughs> I think, you know, one, I don't know if I want uh, another $646 billion out on the ground, recreating where you and I are. Um, but, and I just don't think it's like, I, don't, I just don't think it's achievable. But, you know, it, it does show you that I think she, she's committed to that, uh, to, you know, that economy and helping grow that economy, which is sustainable. So, um, you know, on those two issues, I think that's good. I think, you know, we're looking at, um we're looking at, uh, you know, other issues as well, like clean water and and um, and how federal agencies are managed and 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 the money that goes into that. And so, um, you know, and I can I can't. I mean, we're let's say we're looking into that piece. Um, just so we kind of know where the, the candidates are, and then you know, depending on whoever wins, you know, we're going to work with no matter who wins. And so, um, trying to figure out, how, you know, what kind of uh, we would present to them after the election. And so what, you know, giving them our priorities and saying, hey, you know, this is what we would love for you to do, and then uh, working with them to do that or, you know, saying that they're doing the opposite at that point.
1: Yeah. So to this kind of point, when we're looking at the the two parties and yep. this whole issue, um, one of the things that sometimes happens when a sportsman's organization, or when you, when someone an individual, starts saying, "Hey, we should be concerned about that mine that might impact hunting and fishing," or "I'm concerned about this, you know, drill going in, or this timber harvest," maybe you start hearing mm-hmm. from some people calling you a tree hugger and saying you're some crazy green liberal, something or other, something or other. And right. these things start getting thrown. I don't understand when it became a bad thing for a hunter and angler to care about our environment and the habitat where these animals live, but somehow that's happening. And there's one specific example of this I've seen in relation to what you guys are doing, BHA. There's this, I can't remember when this happened, but I don't know, a couple of years ago, I posted something that you guys had mentioned, a website link or something like that. And someone started commenting on my post with links to this website for green decoys saying, "Ah, oh, backcountry hunters, anglers, and all these guys, they're not really for hunters and anglers. They're green decoys. Can you speak to that a little bit?
2: Yeah, um, and I appreciate your statement. Like, you know, the, why is caring about the places we go hunt and fish, the environment, and, like, uh, how they're managed, how is that in any way, shape, or form, like, anti-hunting? That's That's, that's what hunters and anglers have been doing in this country, really, since this conservation ethic started in the late 1800s. And, you know, without hunters and anglers stepping up for clean water, for clean air, for the Wilderness Act, like, this country is nowhere. And and so this is nothing new. I mean, like, hunters have been stepping up. And I think where this is coming from is it's really like a political kind of wedge tool, right? And that as, as we become... Uh, much more effective at what we do, and you know we're not saying no to timber harvest. We're not saying no to oil and gas development. We're just talking about it in a in a sustainable kind of responsible fashion. And um, I think some folks see the success that we're having in that space, and uh, they're worried. And so they're you know they they are using you know campaign political campaign tactics where you know you trash somebody. Um, and try to hurt their credibility um, in order to kind of undermine um, what they're doing, and I think that's exactly what they're doing. I mean, the the folks that are behind this Green Decoy site, particular, uh, it's a K Street kind of lobbyist PR firm. I uh, have a guy that's the head of it. His name's Richard Berman. He's been, you know, called Doctor Evil by 60 Minutes. Uh, he um, he advocated against mothers against drunk driving. He told pregnant mothers it was okay to. Uh, eat mercury laden fish um he's a bad dude and uh he got caught on tape i believe it was like a year and a half ago he was at a meeting of oil executives in in colorado and he was there and he said you know you guys want to hire me because you know you're gonna you can either play nice and potentially lose or you can play dirty with me and we'll win every single time and was bragging about like these just dirty kind of lying tactics and there was a, a oil and gas CEO in the room um that didn't like what he was hearing so he got out of his cell phone and he pushed record and he sent that to the New York Times and so you know there was a big expose that was done there now Richard Berman and his kind of minions they revel in that you know that's how they do their business and so that's you know no press is bad press for them and and so you know I I think it's pretty laughable, to be honest, like, uh, um, when I first heard it, I was uh, driving down the road, and a friend of mine called me from Louisiana, and uh, I picked up the phone, he's like, have you seen the green decoy stuff, and I was all excited, I thought there was like a new, you know, line of uh, decoys that I hadn't heard about, <laughs> you know, waterfowl hunter, and they started telling me what it was about, I, I will tell you, you know, they've gone after me personally. Um, And, you know, it hurt, and I was pissed, and and I started thinking about it. And, you know, really, we should wear this as a badge of honor. And we should wear it as a badge of honor because the only reason they're attacking us is because we are being successful in this space. And to be quite honest, you know, we're a young organization that not a lot of people know about, and I think that's changing every single day, but, you know, getting our name out there, Um, you know, helps people, like, start to look at who we are. And for those that don't, you know, that are so dogmatic that they can't um, really look at us uh, for what we do, uh, it's going to add more fuel to their fire, and they're going to say, see, you guys are green decoys. Um, But, uh, you know, for the people that look at us, go to our website, I mean, I, I challenge anybody um, that, that thinks that we're quote-unquote green decoys look at any of the policies that we're engaged in and tell me that that's anti-hunting or anti-fishing and you just can't do it. Um, and and so um, there's that piece and then you know I think the, the part that was most laughable to me is that Kona uh, kind of like fake hunters and you know I, I used this the other day when I was talking to somebody and somebody was asking me about it and I just got back from uh, fishing with my daughter and I think she had caught three brown trout and and, and so we had kept them and, and she she turns eight this uh, this summer, and she really wants a knife uh, you know for, for her birthday so that she can help gut fish and and and, uh, um, and, and breast like out ducks and and to me like she 's had more blood on their, her hands than those guys over in d c will ever have you know and they 're pale white lobbyists from inside <laughs> k street so you know, to me, like, that's laughable, and so now they're starting to change their tactics, like, oh, I guess they are real hunters, but, you know, they care about the environment. I'm like, well, just like you said, like, because we care about the environment, we want to make sure we have places that have, you know, uh, elk and deer and and uh, fish and ducks, like, shame on us, like, sorry about that, but that's what we do, and, and I hope that, you know, and they don't probably understand the The history of hunters, I mean, like, you know, we tax ourselves, we pay licenses that all go back to habitat and conservation. And so um, we have a long history of of stepping up, and we're not going to shy away from that. And so, um, you know, it's it's an annoyance for sure, Um, but, you know, we're going to keep our head down and keep doing what we do and not really pay attention to those guys.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, when you read that kind of stuff, just like you said, like if I think of any single person I know who is a member of BHA, these are the most hardcore guys and girls when it comes to hunting and fishing. I mean, I don't know anyone at all who who, who would fall underneath that fake hunter or anti-hunter, anti-fisherman um, by any means at all. So like you said, it, it's pretty laughable, but it does have to be a little bit frustrating when you see that kind of stuff popping up. And for those who are uninformed when they see that, um, you know, that's a, that's a bummer that that's out there. But to your point, badge of honor, you guys are doing a good enough job to get noticed. So.
2: Yeah, and I, you know, I think again, like to your point, like I, mean, I, I told you that when I used to work for National Wildlife Federation, I bring in people from BHA because they're badasses and they they're out there all the time, you know, and and you know this isn't like something that they do once a year to talk about at a cocktail party. It's like a way of life for them, and and so yeah, I mean, I it's we we are, we are are blessed with a, a really awesome membership, and you know, we're gonna keep doing what we do.
1: Absolutely. So. We've kind of touched on it a little bit as we've gone through it. I want to talk about a number of the different issues you, you brought up at the beginning. But I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think probably the number one issue on most people's minds right now is this whole topic of the transfer or sale of public lands. Um, and we've we've talked about it several times in the podcast before. We had Randy on the show to talk about it. We, we've talked with Whit Fosberg about it. Um, but can you give us an update on where things stand now in regards to this whole movement? You know, We haven't talked about it since the whole... Bundy deal we haven't talked about it since some recent votes that happened here just a couple days ago. can you tell us where things stand now and what what that means for us
2: yeah I mean I think uh, I mean I think the Bundy deal as tragic as that was um, I think it awakened people that you know we all are public landowners and you know they I think one of the things that they said is you know we're gonna return this land to the people. Well, who does that mean? Like, it belongs to all of us right now. And what that means is that it goes to, you know, a certain group of people and, and that you know, that want to extract uh, the resources from that refuge, at least at that point. So I think that really showed some, you know, of you know, the hand um, of that movement. And, you know, while you have these kind of extremists, you know, with the, the Bundy bunch, um, you know, the folks that are behind them are big money people. And that's what I think is so ridiculous about this whole thing is that, you know, It's being sold as this, you know, local control and, um, you know, more opportunities for people. But the people that are behind this, that's not what they're thinking. Like, they're either licking their chops to have their own piece of property uh, for themselves or they're looking to exploit it. And after that's done, you know, the fish and wildlife aren't there. So um, I think that helped, to be totally honest. Um, It's really tragic that somebody had to lose their life and that, you know, we had to spend millions of dollars uh, on this standoff. But I also think that it brought more attention to the issue. Um, You know one of the things that people do talk about is that this is such an extreme kind of thing that this would never happen. And that, you know, this is just kind of some crazy people that are talking about it. And two things I would say about that is that, you know, when Theodore Roosevelt set aside this great estate that we have, um, he didn't do that without detractors. In fact, there was senators from my home state of Montana and uh, Idaho that fought him vehemently about it. Um, and openly made it so he couldn't, you know, set aside any more national forests because they wanted to, you know, exploit these resources. And, you know, again, like we have plenty of timber that gets taken off of public lands, um, but it's done sustainably. And um, so those people were around when he set the, that land aside. And then about every 10, 15 years, it seems like they raised their head again. And, and that's where we're at right now. And. Um, you know for those of who don't think it's real uh... we had two votes in the natural resources committee yesterday in the house and there was one bill that uh... would let any single state that had federally managed public lands in their state uh... just take those take two million of those over like whatever they wanted. and um, <laughs> that that passed out of natural resources committee uh... Was mostly on party-line votes there was uh, uh, one Republican in particular that crossed party lines, uh, Representative Zinke here from Montana, uh, which we definitely appreciate. Um, but you know that has an opportunity now to to, to go to the House floor and/or be attached to some you know must-pass piece of legislation, um, which you know is a real thing. Um, the other bill, it didn't give outright uh, transfer of title of the land, but what it did is it gave the ability for states to take over. 200 to 900,000 acres in their states of public land, and then manage them not for multiple use, which is what our you know federally managed public lands are for, you know Forest Service and BLM lands, but for uh, the sole purpose of, of of raising money. And and so when I hear the sole purpose of raising money, red flags go off in my head right away, and that's either extractive industry. Which means, you know, rape and pillage, um, potentially, um, to where that, you know, habitat's not there anymore, uh, and or that could mean, you know, if they want to, if they if, if they want hunting and fishing to go on there, that means they're probably going to lease it out to somebody, and uh, you and I don't have access, but you know, the the people with uh, means, you know, the the billionaires of the world, like that, would be their own private kind of place, and so um, that bill passed out of the Natural Resources Committee as well. Um, unfortunately, that same. Um, Montana senator voted for that one. And so both of these now are pieces that, you know, can move to the floor, can be attached, and they're scary, real things. Um, I do uh, – I will say that there's not many legislative days left. I think it's like 15 or less um, before the election. Uh, and so they'd be hard-pressed to get something done. Um, that said, you know, there's going to be must-pass pieces of legislation that they can they could potentially attach this stuff to. And there'll be a lame duck session, you know, after uh, the election, you know, before the new Congress takes place, which, you know, lots of times there's a lot of movement there. So uh, these are real things. And, you know, uh, when, 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 I, when I hear people say, oh, this is just some extremists," I'm like, here's an example, here's an example, here's an example where this is happening right now. And, uh, and hopefully you change their mind. Um, and so, you know, I think for folks right now, that are listening and want, you know, are, are, are pissed about these two bills going making it through committee, like, you can call up your congressman right now and ask them, uh, you know, to, to make sure that these things don't see the light of day on the, on the House floor um, and, you know, become reality. So that's something you can do right now. And I think, I like, um, like the, there's a switchboard number, um, and, and I know this is like a, like, that, that folks might not be able to uh, uh get this number down or whatever but it's it's 202-224-3121 and and that number will get you to the switchboard then you ask for your local representative and they'll get you right to them and you can make that call today and um i mean i i, w- I would encourage people to do that and and really the message is is that um we don't we want to keep public lands in public hands and say no to both of those bills
1: yeah this is this is like you said it's kind of scary like i i you know had heard about this for a long time and have been advocating for the fact that we need to make sure this movement doesn't build up too much steam. But in the back of my mind, I always thought, you know, they're going to hear us. They're going to hear the sportsmen and all the other outdoor recreators. I mean, there's a lot of people making a fuss about this on our side of this issue. And I'm kind of shocked that these things are still moving forward given all of that um, concern that we're raising. Because I feel like there is a strong movement on the sportsmen on the outdoor recreationalists, all of us, I feel like there's a strong movement building there. I'm kind of shocked and concerned that this type of thing is still moving forward in a fashion like that. Is that I mean that's kind of concerning, isn't
2: it? Oh, it's super concerning, and the reason that that's happening is because of the amount of money that's behind this effort, right? Like when you think about like the billionaires. They're licking their chops right now, and either on how to make more money, you know, through expli- exploitation, or to have their own, you know, honey hole. Like, no joke, they're out there. I mean, there's there's a couple brothers that are um, fracking billionaire kind of tycoons from Texas that here in the last decade have have now become the number one landowner in Montana, and they're buying private land, and that's you know that's great for them, um, and I, you know, and it's, they have every right to to do that. But if public land was put on the chopping block, who do you think is going to buy that? You know, and it's, and it's them um, or it's like these big companies. And and to me, that's why this is, this is still going on. And, you know, we need to continue to step up as a community. I'm really glad that you mentioned kind of the outdoor rec. Um, I feel like they're a voice that is just kind of starting to come into their own. So the kayakers, the mountain bikers, the um, hikers, and, you know, they have a – kind of a, a TRCP-like organization out in D.C. called the Outdoor Alliance, and so I think, you know, they're becoming more and more active, and we're working with them closely. Then there's an organization called the Outdoor Industry Alliance that uh, that's all the kind of manufacturers and the business side of the outdoor economy, or outdoor kind of uh, community, and so, you know, they're starting to step up, and, and I you know, i got to think that we will win, but we can't let off the gas, and you know, and I You know, I talked about how Roosevelt had his own detractors. And since then, you know, we've had stewards that have stepped up for, you know, over 100 years. And I feel like right now at this time, like, it's our jobs to do our part to make sure that, you know, we keep these public lands in public hands. And so that, you know, my daughter and her, you know, kids, if she ever has kids, have something to fight for. Because this is not going to go away. Like, I mean, these guys, there's so much money at stake and there's so much money behind it. That they're not going to go away, and so it's you know it's our part to kind of do our best job of being stewards right now. But uh, you know we got to make sure that those next generations uh, care about this stuff
1: too. Yeah, so true. You know, one thing I just kind of popped in my head as we're talking about this is the fact that one of the kind of speaking points that some that are in favor of this have raised continuously is the fact that oh we just want to transfer the land to the states because the states know the land better, they can better manage it, et cetera, et cetera. And um, we've talked about this before, but I know, I think, some recent studies or articles have come out talking about some examples of states that have maybe not done that with their land, and, and there have been some examples of how the states have been selling off their land. Can you speak to any of that? I mean, what are, are there any examples of this type of thing going the way that we would not want it to go, where a state has public land and either is not managing it well or starts selling it off? I think Idaho was the example I'd seen.
2: So Idaho... Um, I mean, so that, like, Idaho originally was granted like 3.6 million acres. They've sold off a million of that, so that's a third. Um, let's see. A good one would be Nevada, right? Um, people talk about how there's a lot of uh, – there's not much uh, private land in Nevada. Well, they were – when they became a state, they got 2.7 million acres. They got 3,000 acres left. like So, again, like 3,000. Um, New Mexico nice. is another great example, like 13 million Uh, acres and now they have nine million left
3: and so there is tons
2: of precedent where they're selling uh, public land and you know what happens is that these states um they don't they don't have the resources to manage them and and so what they do they're faced with a couple options they can raise taxes and you know the the last politician that did that is not a politician anymore right like nobody goes out and says i'm going to go raise taxes and and so i don't think that's really an option um, the next one is that they can exploit them, which they're doing already. Um, and, you know, they don't necessarily are not places that, that we all want to go hunt and fish. And the third one is that they, that they sell them. And, and they've proven that they, they're doing that, I and mean, they're trying to do that in your home state right now. And, um, you know, I, for me, I mean, there's, there's state land. And, I mean, and, and I, for your listeners that do hunt and fish on state land, a lot of the times those are wildlife management areas. And, you know, and and those are specifically to protect the habitat and provide opportunities for you and I. And uh, those are a small portion of the lands that the states actually manage. And when you think about this piece, the only way the states could afford these new lands and the management of them um, would be not to have them as wildlife management areas, but really have them as, you know, money generators. And, um, and that's where we lose every time. And, and, you know, I think, you know, they, they don't consider, um, road maintenance. They don't consider, I mean, we talked about fire a little bit earlier, like what's your, what's your, you know, your, uh, path forward on, on addressing fire. And and really they don't have a path forward. Um, or they say, oh, the federal government will just, well, they'll pay for it and then we'll do other stuff. And, and that to me, uh, it just doesn't make sense. So, um, you know, they, they want local control, or, you know, quote unquote, local control because they want to exploit it. And that's just really where it's at.
1: Mm-hmm. That's what it seems like. So, in the future, I'm kind of curious what, I guess, two things. First, what is your vision for where BHA is going to be maybe five years from now, ten years from now? I, I guess yeah. let's go with that first. What's the future look like for BHA? Um,.
2: So I think the future for me, you know, we're, we we've already talked about how we brought on chapters this this last year and in uh, Michigan and Wisconsin, we're about ready uh, to bring one on in Texas, which is <laughs> I'm super wow. excited about, in a place of only two percent uh, public land, and you know they're fired up because they know what they don't have, and they know that uh, that they want to kind of you know change the. The dialogue that's happening in Texas, you know, that the, the majority of that is like, let's 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 get it and you know sell it to the highest bidder. So um, I, where we want to be, I'd say chapters, you know, in all 50 states, um, because then that provides us an opportunity to be more effective at a federal level and more effective at a state level. So that that'd be the first one, um, I think. Uh, like, like for me, it's like really diversifying our money. Um, you know, we have many different sources of money right now, but. I'd love for our membership to grow and so that's like a you know, it's a it's a major contributor right now. Um but I'd would like that to be like the major contributor. Um not only uh for just the money for the organization and consistent money, but also um, that you have more clout when you have more members. And and you know, and, and so um growing that, you know, is nothing but good for us. And and so that's I think that's where I'd like to be at you know, I I think uh I think we talked about it just for a minute, but like I think having uh, BHA uh, be a leader within the sportsman space, which we're you know getting there, but even more of a leader. But then also being able to you know work with kind of some non-traditional partners like the outdoor rec community. I think that's um, something that I'd like to see a more solidified partnership there. Um, and then I'd I'd really you know I want to I, I want us to be like represent kind of uh, what America looks like. And so that means uh, more women involved in our organization. I think we're doing a you know a, 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 an okay job with that right now. I mean, we're obviously we're very welcoming to women, um, but we could have more in our ranks. And so I think that's something where I'd like us to be. Um, and then you know we the Latino community, um, the Black community, like like all those kind of other kind of different minority communities that are in the United States and make us who we are as as a country. I'd like to have them involved in our organization too. And um, and so I think I'd I stop there, but those are the things that I would call out and kind of where I'd like us to be in 5
1: or 10 years. That's awesome. So for for my for our listeners, there's got to be I got to yeah. imagine there's a lot of people now listening to this that this resonates with because when I first heard about what you guys are doing, it really resonated with me. So for those people mm-hmm. that want to get involved, sure, they can become a member. But what if In some of these other states, I've got people that that want to be part of a chapter, that want to have a local presence. How does someone go about helping a chapter become formed in their state if you guys don't already have one? I mean, do they just need to become members, or can they become members and call you guys or shoot you an email and say, hey, I want to help start a chapter in South Carolina or whatever? How does that work?
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, like there um, for, like, we kind of – there's two main main factors, I think, with starting a chapter. So – uh, the first one is, is just like a good membership base, and, and so um, making sure that, you know, that it's not just a couple people, you know, in that state. And we have members in all 50 states. Um, I think that Texas chapter, there are, that the Texas folks, I think they have like 78 or so members down in Texas right now. And so we feel like that's, you know, enough people to um, to draw kind of a leadership team out of. And, and so that'd be the second piece is like really good leadership. So, uh, membership numbers are important, but leadership is even more important than that. And, and so I think, I can't remember the number of volunteers that you guys have on the board. We're, we're north of, we're north of 10. Is that right? How many, how many people on the board in, in Michigan?
1: I think we've got 12 board members.
2: Okay, so 12 people, they're geographically distributed um, in some way and bring a lot of different talents, but are all, like, from what I can tell, and I'm, you know, um, I'm looking forward to what I can travel there and meet all you guys face to face, but, like, from what I can tell, just from phone calls and just your engagement, um, either through social media, what you've done at the state legislature, like, I knew it when it happened, but you guys are proving that you are leaders. And so, um, you know, if you want to help start a state chapter, Um, Partly that's like picking up the phone and saying, hey, I'm a member and I want to start a state chapter and then we can talk to you kind of how we get that done. And, um, you know, it's increasing membership and then, you know, finding leadership. And by picking up that phone and wanting to do more, um, that's that. that goes back to that Roosevelt quote, like you're taking that next step, and that's leadership to me every single time. Um, And so, you know, I think folks listening to this, you don't have a chapter in your state, uh, we'd love to talk to you kind of about that piece. And, you know, I've mentioned a couple of Texas of Carolinas um, are are talking about it right now, or folks in Carolinas. Um, These conversations are happening, and the more that we have people reaching out to us saying that they want to become part of a a chapter leadership, then we know that we have, you know, leaders in that state, and that we can kind of have critical mass and go from there. So. Kind of a long-winded way of saying about it, but I think, you know, if you want to get engaged, like, give us a call and we'll figure out how we get that done.
1: I might be a little bit biased, but I feel like this audience, the Wired Hunt Nation, like, these are a lot of serious hunters and anglers and outdoorsmen who appreciate what we have and who I know can step up and will step up so I have confidence in all of you guys and girls out there right now that that some of you will do this because I think there's there's such an opportunity and I think a lot of you guys are probably just as passionate as me and land and and so many other hunters and anglers out there about what we can do when we you know work to preserve these public lands and fair chase and access to hunt and fish Um, it's you know, it's it's central to who we are. So I don't know why we wouldn't try to do everything we can to make sure it's around in the future for our, our children and grandchildren, and that kind of thing. So, now here's my next. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> so here's my next question, Land. Other yeah. than you know getting involved with BHA, we've talked a couple yeah. times about that taking that next step, as Teddy said what would be a couple examples of things that people can do if they want to take that next step, other than just you know becoming a member or maybe leading a chapter or something like that? What can we do in our daily lives in this, in this world?
2: I think one of the, the biggest things that, that, that folks can do is start talking to other people. And you know, I, I, right now, I think the biggest threat to hunting and angling is this complacency. And folks, you know, we're living in pretty darn good times, you know. I mean, uh, National Wild Turkey Federation has been highly successful um, and has brought turkeys, you know, they're everywhere now in this country. Like, that's amazing. Um, There's places, you know, that I grew up that never had a turkey that now are chock full. And so we have, you know, same thing can be said about white-tailed deer, uh, elk populations that are at all-time highs, you know, and the list kind of goes on and on and on. And so with that kind of success that we have or that we're enjoying right now, like we're in the, you know, those good old days, I feel like right now, like people are complacent and they don't understand that, like, really we could lose that in a generation. And so I think people need to talk, like, I, I think one of the biggest things that people can talk about is to people about this heritage that we have, how awesome it is. But the only reason it's awesome is because people have been stepping up. So I think that'd be, you know, part of that conversation. The next conversation, I think, is that, you know, this public landowner piece is that, you know, we are all public landowners, and every single person has a stake uh, in these public lands. And, you know, if you're from New York City and don't ever feel like you're ever going to get out of the city um, but want to someday and go recreate on public lands, you own a piece of America. And so uh, you should really care about that. So I think the the conversation is the first one.
3: Um,
2: And then, you know, it's this uh, get informed, you know. I mean, I think we can provide... We'll give you information um, and uh, and and really uh, um, you know help you make informed decisions. But I, I'd be you know I, I'd be real short sighted to say that we're the only source of information. Like get out there, like the internet, you know, is <laughs> a crazy place and you can learn a lot of things. And um, and I would say get out there and uh, and learn that. Um, and then when you're doing this learning, don't just learn about what's going on right now. Learn a little bit about our history. And I Anger could be much better served if uh, we knew more about our history, Uh, because then you kind of know where we came from. You know, kind of uh, what we've done, which one is really inspiring, but also it 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 shows that uh, that you know that we can do it. And 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 I so I think you know that piece on education. And the last piece uh, that I would say that people can do is, is, is really that civic engagement. And so, you know, and, you know don't just become a member. Uh, don't just tell your friends about us. But really make a phone call to an elected official. You know, show up at a meeting you know, and, and talk about how your local refuge is going to be managed. Um, like those kind of individual efforts, uh, they go a long ways. And something I haven't said tonight that I want to say now is that, you know, a lot of people feel like their voice doesn't count. And so why should I, you know, why should I uh, do anything? And, and, you know, why should I step up? And, you know, I talk to elected officials a lot, and some I know more, you know, are better than than others. And so you can have these conversations, like, that that they'll be real kind of honest with you. And you ask them about this kind of grassroots piece. And so um, one of the things I asked them is, like, when you guys get a phone call, what does that mean? And they're like, well, you know, we, we think that, like, represents 100 other people. Wow. And so you think about, you know, making... You know, let's say now you made that call and that you're representing 100 people. Well, you got your buddy and another buddy in the call, so now you're, you know, like those numbers are jumping up right away. And um, and so your voice does count. And and you know, your voice counts at that elected official level, and it definitely counts at the kind of administrative level where you're making comments on plans. And um, so that's the last piece I would say is, is, is step up and get engaged. And, um, you know, I think sometimes it's a process for people. Sometimes people don't want to, you know, jump in with both feet, and I totally understand that. Um, but as you learn more about kind of our heritage, what we have now, and what's at stake, I almost guarantee you that you want to get involved because, uh, you know, like you say, the the folks on your that are listening right now, they're you know very passionate and very uh, committed, um, you know, hunters and anglers, and, and and I just, I just can't. I, I know that, the, that folks are going to want to get involved because they care so much about
1: this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of uh, making phone calls, can you share that number again, that switchboard number? Because that's great. There's a simple yep. number. You call that number, and you, it sounds like you just mentioned which representative you're trying to get a hold of, and you're patched through. Is that right?
2: Yep. So the, it's a U.S. Capitol switchboard, so it's 202-224-3121. Perfect. And I think the simple message of you know like make sure that anything you anything you vote on that you're keeping public lands in public
1: hands. Yeah, that seems like a pretty simple, quick little thing each one of us could do right now to to probably make a really positive difference because like you said, if one phone call represents probably about a hundred people in their eyes, holy smokes. Can you imagine if a hundred of us did that right now or a thousand of us? that's uh, huge, that's powerful.
2: It's huge, you know, and I, I mean at the end of the day. What we all need to remember is that these are politicians and they want to be elected for another term. And so the more that they hear on a certain issue, the more they're going to pay attention to that issue because it has to do with their reelection. And so when you step up and you make that phone call, uh, they, they will listen.
1: That's awesome. So one other thing you mentioned a few minutes ago was the importance of understanding our history as hunters and conservationists. And I a hundred percent agree. I've been doing a lot of reading and, and, trying to better understand the history myself, but I'm curious, do you have any resources you'd recommend or books or anything to help someone learn more about that history?
2: Great, great, um, questions. So, uh, we actually have, um, some interns in our office right now. And so they've been uh, thirsty for that stuff too. Um, I'd say like almost any biography on Theodore Roosevelt is a good way, a good place to start. Um, and just you know, he's kind of the godfather of conservation. Um, made it a, kind of a national priority, and so just kind of learning how he came to that. And he came to that pretty honestly. He came to that as a hunter. Um, you know, he's he spent a lot of time out here in the West and Upper Midwest uh, chasing critters around, and that's where he kind of got this passion. So I think reading, you know, just kind of about. The way he came to conservation and then what he did as a president, I think, is, is, is pretty grounding. Um, there's a book by Rieger, R-E-I-G-E-R, and it's like origin, or I think it's, what's the, the title is like the origin of, the origins of like sportsman conservation, and I might get that wrong, but the, the author's name is Rieger, R-E-I-G-E-R, and he goes through the history of kind of, um, you know, the early, like the late 1800s, Uh, into kind of like the Dirty 30s where Ducks Unlimited was formed and National Wildlife Federation was formed Uh, then through like kind of like the Clean Air and Clean Water Act stuff in the 1970s and so it gives you a great kind of uh, history piece there Um, I think uh, Sand County Almanac uh, by Aldo Leopold who they call like the godfather you know of uh, game management I think is an unbelievable read and I will say that I think he wrote that in the 40s Uh, um, what he wrote about in the 40s is still pertinent today. And, and, you know, a lot of the things he talked about in there, you know, fair chase or even uh, um, kind of just conservation practices and how all parts uh, matter, not just, you know, the megafauna that you and I chase. Um, it's all important to that kind of ecosystem. I think it's a great read, and it's not that long. And so I think that would be one I would read. Um, and then, you know, I think, uh, you know, Field and Stream has a uh, conservation blog. I call the conservationists. And so Hal Herring uh, writes for that and Bob Marshall writes for that. And I think both those guys are, um, one, smart as hell, but two, um, great at kind of like talking about the issue. So I, I think those are those are some of the resources I would go to. Um, and you know, if, if folks want more, um, that's quite a bit to start with. If they want more, uh, they can feel free to to contact me and, and really, uh, or you know, somebody on our staff, and we can we can think about other resources.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Those are I, I've read or checked out most of those, and I hundred percent agree. Really good suggestions. Another one that's an interesting one uh, is a book called The Last Stand. I think it's by Michael Pumke or something like that. And that book was about specifically the history of the buffalo, but then the story of George, George Bird Grinnell. And then eventually oh. what he did through Forest and Stream, you know, the precursor to Field and Stream, and then eventually how he worked yep. with Teddy and, and the rest of the group to form the Boone and Crockett Club and all the impact that they had. Um, that's another really interesting one to add to that list.
2: You know, I've heard about that book. Uh, Mark, but I've have not read it. So thank you for the reminder, and that is now on the list.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. I uh, I read it while stuck in a tent in the middle of a, basically a, a monsoon while hunting elk last year in Idaho up in the back country. So I was up there trying to weather the storm and read read some good hunting conservation literature. And
2: thank goodness he had that book, right? Like he might have gone crazy in that tent with that rain for hours upon hours, right?
1: I really probably would have. So it was a (laughs) lifesaver. That's good. That's good. Yeah. So so here's probably my final question, Land. I think for all of us, you know, when we think about these types of issues, you know, protecting our hunting heritage, these different landscapes, these animals, for many of us, I think there is a certain place maybe that we think about or that connects with us in some kind of special way that initially brought that passion or help has helped us kind of realize, wow, I, I want to do something to protect this place or these animals or, or this experience. Do you have a place or, or an experience or, or is there something special within the hunting and fishing world that really resonates with you deep down more than anything else?
2: So if it's all right, I'm going to answer that in two ways. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, the first one is, I think I mentioned, you know, my father passed away, and I was 20 years old. I'd been out in Seattle, just kind of messing around, and so I came home to be with my family when he passed away, and still really kind of hadn't found my way. And one night I was going home uh, after a late night kind of carousing with friends, and about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I lived about 3 miles out of town. It's where I grew up, and uh, a mountain lion ran across my path in front of me. And, uh, and then stopped on the side of the road, and then it kind of looked at me, and then ran again across the front of the road. And like to see that apex predator and that close for one was just amazing uh, to watch. That its back never really moved; it just kind of glided. You know, that it ran across like that. To me, was like this. If I had to point to like a moment, um, was really that piece that you know I'd kind of been lost after my father passed away, and like it was like it kind of struck me then. And um, and so uh, you know I'm very fortunate to to have that experience. Um, I say the special place for me is the Bob Marshall Wilderness. Uh, and there's a t- couple of places that I won't tell you about <laughs> that are in the wilderness um, sure that I visit. Uh, uh, one is a place that uh, I go fish. Um, it's pretty hard to get into. Went in there last year with my uh, uh, wife for our anniversary. Cutthroat are hungry on every single cast, uh, and, and you're alone. And then the other place is a place where we go uh, elk on all the time up there, and I go in there with my family every year, and, um, you know, those two places are just, they're so special to me, and I think, you know, I, I don't know how you are with this, but, you know, I, I live in this crazy world where, you know, I'm, I'm going, you know, kind of balls to the wall all the time, I'm connected through my cell phone, I'm on the, you know, on my phone or on my computer, you know, almost all day, um, and it's really hard for me to turn that off, and, when I go into the Bob Marshall, I'm forced to do that, and I don't have cell phone access up there. And, you know, I bring my cell phone, and that's the only reason I bring my cell phone in so that I can, uh, um, use it as an alarm and also take pictures with it, because it's pretty light, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they take great pictures nowadays. And so, like, but it's that place that I can escape, and, 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 you know, the revitalization I get from going to the Bob, um, is, is just spectacular, and, and you know, I, I, I hope that that's there for everybody for a few generations and that, you know, I want everybody that's listening to this to think about that place, you know, think about the last time that you were there and, you know, maybe not the trigger that you pulled or the arrow that you let fly or the fish that you caught, but, like, you know, what the breeze felt like on the back of the neck, you know, in that afternoon nap that you took there, and we're at total peace. Like, that's where I find my solace, and I think everybody else that's one of the reasons why we do what we do is to have those experiences, and so um, the Bob Marshall is, is that place for me. And um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll vehemently you know help protect that place for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think a lot of us can relate to those to those experiences and feelings, and the importance of having somewhere you can just get away from it all. And whether that's you know hundreds of thousands of acres in the Bob, or whether that's a hundred acres of public land down the road, or or just your back forty that maybe you own, whatever it is, having wild places undeveloped places to some degree where we can reconnect with with nature and wildlife i mean that's so important and unfortunately it's becoming an increasingly rare opportunity for people in this country so i think you know like you said there, we're not making any more of it we've got to do something to make sure what we have that's left stays that way so
2: totally totally those uh i mean i think that's and I, i'm glad you mentioned that i mean like the kind of the difference i mean sometimes people think you know Unless a backcountry, all we care about is, like, these big, huge, you know, million-acre wildernesses, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. The way you just described that, like, those places where you go find that escape or that connection to nature, we all know what that feels like, and we all, that's what we want to protect, is we want to protect kind of like, it's not like a, a definition of how big backcountry is, but it's that, it's more like the experience and that feeling you get when you're there. Um, and, you know, we do that on public land, so, um, yeah, like, think about your place and think about what what, what that would be like if if you couldn't go there anymore or the vastly changed and I think that's definitely motivating for me and I think it's motivating to a lot of
1: people. Absolutely. So if anyone out there wants to learn more about backcountry hunters and anglers where can they go online to do that?
2: So uh, our website is just you know backcountryhunters.org so very easy Um, you can just google our name too and it'll come right up um, just got a new website, so uh, I'm pretty excited about the look and feel of that. Um, our Facebook page is is very robust. Uh, we had Randy uh, do a Randy Newberg do a thing last night.
1: Yeah.
2: On Facebook Live, I think he was on there for like an hour and 40 minutes or something like that. And so um, it's the Facebook, you know, something we're posting on two or three times a day. Very a great way to learn more about us. And then we're on uh, Instagram and Twitter as well. Instagram is more about pictures, and Twitter is more about uh, kind of Um, really interacting with elected officials but all those platforms oh the last one I guess I would say is that we have a YouTube channel and within that YouTube channel we have a thing called Backcountry College Um, so all skills um, which is pretty awesome we've got a guy out of Idaho named Clay Hayes that we call our professor because he's just he's one of the most woodsy guys I've ever been around Um, and i learned something every time I watch one of those so um, those are the platforms and you know find out more about us and then once you do become a member you know and and if you got questions, you know, I think one thing that's also unique about our organization is that I'm very accessible. You know, our, our entire staff is very accessible. So if you have questions, you know, give us a call, and if we don't get you right then, we'll get back to you, and um, or shoot us an email, and uh, and we'll definitely um, uh, we'll definitely uh, at least try to answer your questions. If we can't, we'll try to find somebody that can.
1: Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to link to all that stuff. So if anyone listening wants to do that. You can just head over to the blog post, click those links, or go right to, like Land said, backcountryhunters.org. And uh, I'll, I'll echo your sentiment, Land. I, I just highly recommend everyone listening to go out and become a member. and. Uh, selfishly i'm on the membership committee for the board in michigan so it's my job to try to <laughs> add new members so come on guys help me out become a member in michigan if you're in my home state join the team and uh, we'll hopefully get to uh, meet up for some of these upcoming functions too <laughs> so
2: that's awesome if everybody that was a membership chair across the country had your platform uh, we'd be doing even better right <laughs> thank you for that
1: yeah absolutely so lane this has been a lot of fun i, I appreciate taking the time to chat
2: Oh, for sure. For sure. Anytime.
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, let's hopefully stay in touch and, and maybe we'll do this again. And maybe while I'm out West here, we can, we can bump into each other and, and grab a drink or a coffee or something.
2: Love that, dude. I love that. Anytime, um, that, you know, if, if those stars align, I'd love to do that. And like I said, but you know, I'm also, I want to make sure that in this next year, that I figure out a way to get out and see you guys in Michigan too.
1: That'd so be awesome.
2: My parents, my parents went to the University of Michigan and, uh, I have pictures of me when I was two years old in the big house so I don't know if you're an MSU guy or a UM guy but like I'm definitely a Wolverine and uh, it would be fun oh,
1: to come back oh no Land that's a horrible way yes, to end Yeah, I did
0: it I did it it was like this great conversation until
1: right then right I am a, <laughs> I'm a Michigan State alum <laughs> oh man it's, it's, it's in your blood oh it's it runs green and white very thick but I, <laughs> I won't hold it against you <laughs> alright alright All right, we Land. can have a friendly kind of bet around that thing too absolutely Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll talk to you again soon. All
2: right. Sounds good, bud. All
1: right, bye-bye. All right. So there you have it. Another episode in the books, but before we go, we need to thank our partners who help keep this podcast on the air. So big thank you to sick of gear, trophy, Ridge, bear, archery, redneck blinds, Huntera maps, Ozonics, carbon express, Maven optics, and the whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, Thank you all for tuning in today. I hope you enjoy getting to learn a little bit more about BHA, and I hope you'll all join me in getting involved. And, of course, I hope you'll stay Wired to Hunt.
0: Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop. It's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly, edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill.